to the Loaf Podcast. Welcome back to the bakery, everyone, where we break bread with the world's finest. Today, we are so lucky to be joined by Nikita Gill. Oli and I are in the studio today with the famous Instagram and published poet, Miss Gill. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Is it okay if we call you Nikita? Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Um, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for so much for having me. Um, this is fantastic. Yeah, so Nikita, you came to the union uh, last year to a poetry symposium that I organized and you read there with another artist, Savannah Brown. And I was wondering, looking back, what that experience was was like. Uh, I think that was definitely one of my favorite nights. Uh, of It was 2022, wasn't it? It was yeah. definitely one of my favorite nights of 2022. Um, it was really my favorite part of the evening. I love Savannah and I think she's amazing. And I love doing readings myself, but I really love listening to um, the students, the students read. Like I thought that was so powerful because I could see that. I, I think a few of them told me that they had never performed before, but you would never guess that when you watch them perform um on on stage and i think what was really lovely at the end of end of the evening was to be able to talk to um everybody who performed and kind of just get to know a little bit more about where their poetry was coming from because i think the thing with po- poetry is it is so personal and it comes from such a um vulnerable place and it's so it, it's almost like painfully honest that you need to know the per- sometimes you, you want to know the person behind the piece to really um, add more context to the piece as well. And I thought that was really, really special to be able to talk to everybody who performed afterwards. So yeah, I love that. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so before we get into, we're already touching on some pretty good topics, but just before we get into that, as a poet, I thought we should start with one of the most poetical subjects and it's the title of our podcast. So we wanted to ask you your favorite bread. oh oh my god okay that that's um i'm gonna i'm gonna say it's a it's a tiger loaf (laughs) i I love it i think that the tiger loaf is my favorite because it is just the right consistency of um thickness for a really good camembert like you you bake a great camembert and it's the the best consistency for that so yeah that i definitely um a tiger loaf <laughs> also oh, there's a really brilliant. funny story behind the tiger loaf have you heard about you must have heard this story not at you all heard? no go ahead so apparently um the tiger loaf was originally something that sainsbury's had green had named the giraffe loaf and this little girl kind of went to visit them and she said well it doesn't look like a giraffe it looks like a tiger the the markings and they actually changed the name of the bread <laughs> right really <laughs> I thought that was such a cute story. <laughs> you know, that, that's funny you say that because I'm pretty sure um, when I was at school, we would go to like Sainsbury's every single day. This is like five, six years ago, maybe. I'm pretty yeah. sure I was having giraffe baguette. So maybe maybe she changed this since then. So that's pretty funny. <laughs> well, maybe I have it wrong. Maybe it's the other way around. But yeah, it was one of those stories. I thought it was a really funny story. <laughs> that they actually, well, it's nice when they listen to children, right? Because children are pretty on point when it comes to stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, it's always such good stories that we get when we ask guests uh, about their favorite bread. We asked 
um, one guest, Matthew Johnson, about his favorite bread. And he was telling us how it's, when he was younger, it was like sliced bread with crisp stuffed in it. And it's just, it's brilliant to hear everyone's own experiences. Everybody loves a good crisp sandwich. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so as I mean, you came to Oxford to speak. So, you know, this is an Oxford University podcast. And as, as Oxford students facing the tough work uh, grind and having our own fair share of writing block on late night essays. We're wondering how you deal with writer's block as an artist. I write some poetry myself and, you know, it's a really big hurdle and can often lead to a lack of motivation. How do you deal with that? You know, I'm actually going through like some pretty major writer's block on two separate projects for two completely separate reasons right now. And the big thing that I've learned with writer's block is it's a very it's it's not only like an individual thing, like, you know, different writers get blocked over different things, but it's also per project. It can be entirely different. So one of the projects I'm working on is this uh, is for a really prestigious institution. And the thing which is blocking me is the last person who wrote for that institution was Seamus Heaney. And that's some very big shoes wow. to fill. So it's the last poet that they had worked with 25 years ago was him. And like, you know, it's very hard to kind of go, well, they've picked you for a reason. They like your work for a reason. They don't want you to write like Seamus Heaney. They want you to write like yourself. So that was a big barrier to break through. You know, it's like, how do you follow up someone who's larger than life? And the way that I've kind of been breaking through that barrier is constantly reminding myself in the mornings when I, before I start working. So I work on this project first thing in the morning, but my brain doesn't have the time to um, start like think, uh, start listening to my inner critic. So before I can listen to my inner critic, I've already started work on the project. So a lot of like the good writing on this project happens then. Um, and the second project I'm working on is a book, which is a sequel. Like it's a sequel poetry collection to um, one of my earlier books. And I've never written a sequel before. And that is such a block for me because I'm like, oh, you know, um, it's a first time. It's the first time I'm writing a sequel. And everyone has <laughs> that saying, right? The sequel is never as good as the as the first. And I've got that block in my head kind of going, oh God, like, do, do I make it enough like the first book that people kind of look at it and go, this was a, you know, this was such a good continuation of the first book. Or do I just go in extremely crazy and just make it quite different, but just with similar themes? You know, so that's, there's, as Robert Frost said, there are two words, uh, there are two roads that I could take, there are two paths, and I'm stuck because I don't know which path to take. So finally, what I've decided is I'm just going to listen to my creative brain and just make it as crazy and free as possible, instead of trying to make it, um, trying to stick to a traditional rule that I've set for myself with that first book. So I think with writer's block, you kind of have to identify the source of the problem because every writer's block is happening for a completely different reason. And when you identify the source of the problem, whether it's like tiredness, whether it's, oh, I don't think I can do it, whether it's a confidence thing, whether it is a um, just a, a, you know, a personal block because you're writing about something quite vulnerable, it, it depends on the reason. And then to write your way out of that reason, I would say free write. Like you don't have to write about the thing that um, you're blocked on, but just start free writing. Even if you're saying like, I have writer's block like 20 times, 30 times on a page, just 
pre-write your way out of it because it's the only way to get through it. Like they say, right? Doesn't You can't go over it. You can't go under it. The only way is through it. Writer's block is like that. The only way is like going through it and identifying the problem. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I think people have such an image of poetry as like, you know, there's sort of no expectations placed upon you. You're completely free to kind of do whatever you want. But in a weird way, you kind of have your own expectations impinging upon you. Um, I was going to ask, that must be so different from the corporate world, which you transformed over from before you became a full-time poet, where you have very rigid structures. Expectate, you know, you can't get writer's block. You just know what you have to do. So very rigid expectations from people. How did you find that adjustment over? What liberties do you have now? Is there anything you miss? Do you know, I think people have this idea that um, when you move to move from like a co- corporate, quite traditional space to like this very free space with creativity and so much um, freedom, that is quite an easy transition, but it's not because the human beings respond very well to structure. And what a corporate job does is that it gives you that structure. It gives you the nine to five. You have someone you have to answer to. Um, In a lot of ways, it takes the responsibilities of setting your own work out of your, it takes it away from you. You know what you're doing. You can almost work in like robot mode. And that's the thing that I used to hate because it used to limit my creativity. But the minute I got the freedom to be able to explore it's almost like I i was like a deer in the headlights going, oh my God, I can do anything I want. I can create anything I want. Where do you begin? It's a fear of the blank page. Um, and I think the, 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 the real beauty was finding my own structure within the freedom. And it, it, it's taken a long time to develop that. It sometimes takes an artist like, 10 years to find the thing that really works for them. But for me, it was very much, I wake up in the morning, I read, um, I do, uh, I free write and I do like three morning pages before I get into my actual writing. And my morning pages are just, they, they say that you have to get out a lot of bad writing to be able to get to the good writing. So the morning pages are that, they're like the crap, the the nonsense in my head, the compulsive thoughts, the anger, the grief, whatever I'm carrying from the previous day, I put that in and then I start afresh on my work. Um, And usually the hardest project for, you know, so the hardest thing I have to do, I try to get rid of it to start with, and then I move on to the other things. But it took a long time to find a structure that worked for me, right down to the kind of notebooks I like to write in, um, the kind of pens I like to use, the kind of equipment I, I enjoy. Um, and it's, you know, if I don't get, uh, Stephen King does this very interesting thing. The first thing when he get uh, what he does when he gets up at about five in the morning is he goes for a walk for an hour, you know? So every writer has their own way, their own structure of dealing with things, but that structure takes a long time to develop. Like you can't just, um, I think people think that once you publish your debut and your debut is successful, um, that's it. You know, you're, you're, you've got it made or something like that. But when you're a debut novelist or a debut poet, or you've just done your first book, you suddenly start worrying about that second book. And that structure really helps with the second book because your first book, you write in an abyss or a void, you know, you, you write it without thinking about the expectations. You write it without thinking about, um, you know, who's waiting for this book. And 
So you kind of write it in a very haphazard way. And there's a really beautiful flow to every debut book that you will ever read, every debut chapter. And I love those flows because that flow is like the rawness of the of the writer's voice and the spirit, right? And the second book has to have the structure and the things that you've learned. So I do think you have you spend a long time developing that as a writer, and it really depends on where you come from. I think I'm one of those people who believes very strongly in discipline when it comes to to write. I have to write every day. Um, if I'm not writing something every day, um, I feel like I'm losing grips on my craft. So yeah. That's so <laughs> I don't interesting. know if I answered your question, but yeah. <laughs> I think you answered the question really well. And just following from that, you mentioned the different tools that you have, your pen, uh, you go on, Stephen King goes on a walk and there's all these different tools that yeah. an author has when they're coming up with the creation. And what's really interesting is in our age, we now have social media and your Tumblr in your case, as it's starting to truly take off. And now we're really feeling these effects, of social media, and you're arguably best known for your work on Instagram. And I was wondering, is it harder? Is it easier? What are these differences from the time of Seamus Heaney now to these days where we've got social media as a new tool in the toolbox? You know, um, I would say in a lot of ways, I think it's harder um, because there's so many um, platforms now. So when I, my, I have a lot of friends from back in my Tumblr days um, and, and we always talk about the best thing about Tumblr was that it was just, it was a very chilled platform. You could put up anything you wanted and you wouldn't know what took off because social media used to be so much more of a democratic space. Then it was pre them developing these algorithms. Everything was very chronological. So you shared something, whoever was online at the time would like, you know, see it and they would share it or whatever, you know. Um, now things have become so much more complex and so much more opaque, I would say. Um, you know, with, with 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 gatekeepers, and I've always railed against gatekeepers, at least you know that, okay, they're gatekeepers. This is the kind of stuff that they expect. With social media algorithms, you don't know, like, what they're pushing. You know, you know that they're going to push the stuff that gets the most engagement. And most of the time, that is outrage content. And I've had to like spend a lot of time thinking, where does poetry fit into that? Because poetry isn't about outrage. It's about the truth and often very uncomfortable truths, but they're not there to provoke anger out of you at anything other than injustice, you know? Um, and I think there's, there's like a whole journey, which I've kind of gone on where I've, I'm very ambivalent about social media now. So I'm like, on one hand, I wouldn't have my career and where I am now without it. But on the other hand, I'm like, is this actually good for artists, for social media companies to have such a such a chokehold on, on what goes um, with art and what what works with art? Um, and I think I, I, I have a friend who talks very beautifully about this. Her name is Trista Matier. She's also a poet. Um, but Trista basically says that every time some of us, which is like, you know, working class poets, immigrant poets, or immigrant artists, or people who, you know, who aren't usually represented, um, we make it through. They kind of put up the walls behind us. And that's kind of how I see social media algorithms. I'm kind of really sad for the next generation of artists because they deserved the same democratic platform. Um, but it's just not the same as it used to be. 
So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the, I agree with you so much about the algorithm. Even for me as like a consumer, I find so much, if I'm interested in something, it's coming up already. And for people who, there's such a confirmation bias with that, where people will like a certain kind of poetry or the kind of poetry from somebody from their socioeconomic class, they don't want their ideas challenged. And there's such a, there's such a barrier there. You're right. So how do you think these sorts of going beyond social media, how do you think these barriers to the getting into the arts world can be addressed? Say for like, like you say, working class, disadvantaged people. How do you think we can work at like readdressing that? Do you know the, the, the good thing about um, the UK, because obviously I came from India, is that there are a lot of things like grants available to artists here. Um, of course, over the last 13 years, um, things have become far more difficult and far more um, challenging because of the cuts that have been put um, on, say, the Arts Council and these grants and things like that. But I still think that one of the best things in the world is when artists support other artists. And this is a community. The poetry world is a community. And the 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 best support that I have received as an artist is from other artists. And I think making that network stronger and not via social media, but like creating a network of people who are like you, who are artists or poets or writers um, and then growing together. That's kind of how like so many of us grew from Tumblr, like a lot of the well-known poets today on social media, we did all grow from Tumblr together. We all know each other and we all supported each other. You know, um, we shared each other's work. And I think that word of mouth um, and that support and the mentoring, you know, of, of like an older poet mentoring a younger poet, those are the things that we can put into place as individuals to help um, and building that community. But I do think the arts needs money. And to be able to get that money, we need to break um, the chokehold that um, tech companies have on the arts right now. So, and that's a bigger conversation. There's a great book called Choke Point Capitalism. Um, and one of the authors of that book is Cory Doctorow. And he talks about how um, tech companies have basically captured labor, uh, creative labor markets and how we can take them back. And it's a great book if you want to read further into that. Um, question. It's one of my highest recommended books. So, yeah. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So it seems clear from what you've said and from my experience as well, that social media and tech is changing the way that we view and consume poetry and art. But I think what's an even more interesting question is if you think social media has changed the way poetry is written. Yeah. Um, see, it's, it's not the fault of the poets, um, to a great extent, and it's certainly not the fault of any artist who does this, but my, one of the things I talk a lot about, especially in schools, when I visit is an art and it's a running, it's a running joke online, actually, amongst artist communities that you take five minutes to write like a thought, a scribble, right? And that goes viral. But the piece that you took months to write or months to create or that doesn't do as well. Now, psychologically, what does that do to the artist who spent the hours writing that piece, but then found the thing that he, he wrote or made in five minutes going viral? It tells him that you should make more of those five minute pieces, you know, and that 
what does that say on a larger scale about the arts? What does that say? What is that going to do to the next generation of artists? Like we're not going to really know the damage of that algorithmic, um, you know, pressure uh, for at least another 10 years, you know, and, and it's something which I'm actually, I'm, I'm writing a lot of like essays around digital existentialism and, you know, because obviously I'm in a good position to talk about it because my career depends on it. Um, and, and the ambivalence and the pain of knowing that what the next 10 years are going to look like for the arts, um, because of this, uh, algorithmic pressure and, the the performance that you have to do on social media because people also want you to be really authentic, but it's also your business. So how do you separate the personal from the um from the business side of things? It's it's very hard to do. Um and artists are kind of stuck in the middle of all of that. So that is really difficult. And you you speak about it so clearly you have experience in it and it's really great to hear it from you. I mean, like you said, your livelihood does depend on it. And to touch on something which is very current and also a little bit sensitive, especially in the field of, of the arts, even us as we do graphic design, even we, so Oli and I feel it, the rise of AI, how do you think that is going yeah. to change the future of poetry, online poetry? For example, as you mentioned, you could write, spend months on a poem that AI simply cannot live up to, AI simply cannot replicate that, but maybe a quick mm -hmm. scribble, maybe AI can replicate that. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I I try very hard not to engage too much with um, the AI discourse. And I'll tell you why. It's because over the last 10 years, I've been spending a lot of time observing um, the way tech tech companies do their PR. And there's like an influx of PR around something usually where they overpromise and they plan to deliver eventually, but they need the money to be able to deliver on those things. And I think AI is very interesting because it kind of, it was, what was it like middle of last year, late last year, that suddenly we saw this like influx of articles that came in about how AI was going to destroy all the jobs. It was like the next industrial revolution. It was, it took things so quickly to such a large peak that I was like, they're definitely doing that thing again that they did where they tried to push through something um, without considering, they, they, they tried to smash regulations because they know that the people who are in power and government, um, a lot of them, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be ageist or anything like that, but I, did you take the time to hear the TikTok hearing in the US? Did you hear anything? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was hilarious. <laughs> You've seen clips. It's, Funnily it's, enough, I saw it on TikTok. But, <laughs> but the so thing funny. is, look, I am all for like tech CEOs in, in in the in the sense of the TikTok hearing being dragged in to to you know to have this these convert these difficult conversations with them. Like, what are you doing to protect users' data? What are you doing to protect their privacy? Um, how is artists' um, content being protected from being scraped? How, you know, I'm, I'm all for that happening, but I really want the people asking the questions to not be the kind of people who need to ask their grandchildren how to turn the Wi-Fi on. You know, like, I, I, I feel like we, we are in this, in this very pivotal moment where all of the people who are in charge don't seem to understand what the technology is. 
and they're the ones who are asking the questions. And that's my concern with AI, that the regulations will come. They are coming, in fact. But will the damage already be done by tech pushing something through um, with their PR, which is like completely deregulated? It's, it's a much larger conversation, but I... Um, I don't think AI could ever replace artists because I agree. the human I agree. connection that artists bring is 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 too important. Even with graphic design, I used to be a graphic designer. So even with graphic design, the client, you you know this, the client often don't know what they want, but they think they know what they want. <laughs> so you have to get in and psychologically analyze what the client actually wants, pull it out, and then give them this thing. You know, and then convince them that actually this was the thing you you originally. I know it's different from what you said, but this is what you actually wanted, and that's how I did most of my graphic design work. But you can't get a machine to do that. You just put in a bunch of like commands into a machine, and it'll give you exactly that. You know, you need a human being to be able to decipher the art. It's that simple. So yeah, yeah, um, no. I, I completely agree. Like Lucas and I sometimes we'll just make like little AI poems for the fun of it. Like we'll just give it a prompt. Like something funny happens, right? You just ask it to make a sonnet or something. Yeah. And it sort of works. Like it can put it, it can give you a rhyme scheme and stuff, but there's something there which is always lacking. And I think I think you're right about that. There's that little bit of I don't know if it's creativity or what you want to ascribe it to, but there's definitely something which I just think the technology is never gonna quite get. It's it's human emotion. You can't replicate human emotion, and I, I, unless it's another human being. And I know that people are under the impression that AI can pretty much do anything, but it really cannot replicate human emotion. It's a machine. Like you just you can't. That's not what art was about to start with. Um, if I remember correctly, for years they said that the reason why AI was being built was to liberate the human. Um, masses to be able to pursue their creative pursuits so yeah yeah i think that's one of the things that maybe has contributed so much to your wide appeal is compared to somebody who for example has like a super formalist approach to poetry or whatever you have you really let emotion take the forefront and that's something i've really enjoyed in your poetry you. i read um note to self which i think is one of your most popular poems and that shares a deeply personal history of trauma could you maybe talk to us a little bit about, and, and for our listeners, how personal anecdotes in your writing have helped with your journey of healing and self-discovery and maybe how that can help other people using that emotion? Um, do you know, it's very hard to be so vulnerable in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but I think one of my favorite things about uh, social media and what it gave me access to is is the comment sections in all of my um in in all of on all of my posts because what happens is when someone reads a poem and they're able to instantly respond to it they get a very raw you get a very raw response and that response is usually coming from such a place of um vulnerability and pain and i try very hard to honor that in the comment sections of my of my posts and that collective collectiveness and that community, um, it really helps with healing. So when I post something, which I feel quite vulnerable about, and I see a lot of people responding with, you know, some really personal stuff, like someone will say, oh, you know, um, 
I, I shared this with my son and we were going through a really hard time at the time and it's helped our relationship. Um, but also this is what happened between us. You kind of have to find the space to, to treasure that because that is such a personal, beautiful thing another human being has given you. And this is, again, this is why I think it would be so hard for AI to replicate that, you know, that instant raw reaction to a, a human being creating a piece of art. There's nothing more beautiful and human than that, you know? So I think a lot of my healing when it, when it comes to my work, it, it comes from that sense of community, that sense of collectivism. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And slightly on a more negative note, how do you then deal with sometimes the negativity that comes maybe from outside that community and can often come with an online presence? And what would your tips be for other people who are perhaps also facing this negative online presence? Um, so, you know, I obviously, um, one of the, the big things with being visible, um, is that you will, you will be trolled. That is, it's just how it is on the internet. Shouldn't be in, in a perfect world. It wouldn't be like that. People would recognize the humanity in the person that they're talking to. But, um, my grandfather once told me something very interesting, which is related to this, um, tangentially, but I was talking to him about, you know, being trolled. And he, I was like, I would never speak to another human being like that. I don't understand why, you know, people are saying these things. I think it was literally, it was about a death threat. And my granddad told me something very interesting. And he said, you know, one of the things that he was, he was, um, he's in the army to give some context to this. He, he retired as a lieutenant general. And he said that one of the things that I learned when I was in the armed forces is it is a lot easier to shoot someone from a great distance than it is to shoot them to their face, you know, like just to, sh and that he said that one of the, it's one of the things that a lot of world war two soldiers talked about later on, um, when they finally had the capacity to that you, when, when you're able to shoot someone from a distance, you're able to see them as an enemy a lot more easily because you don't have to attach a face to the person that you're shooting. But when you're up close, you can't shoot that person because they're a human being just like you. And I think it applies to social media as well. Um, people are so far removed from seeing the other person as a human being because they're at such a far distance from them. They're in a screen somewhere, you know, um, that it's a lot easier to shoot them that way or to hurt them that way. But if you were standing in front of that person, they would never speak like that to you, ever. It's, it's, they would recognize that you're a human being and the social, um, need of being polite would come first over everything. So it's important to remember that it's not about you. It never is. And that human being would never speak like that to you in real life. And I try to keep that and hold that as, um, something which I use to protect myself. But more than that, I also am very liberal with the block button. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's so powerful, this idea of, of shooting. And it just, it reminds me of, I was once on a plane and I, I was near this old woman and she told me about her late husband. And it was such a powerful story about how he was in the war and, and how he was chatting to the enemy. I think it was the Germans, um, the night before having a cigarette and chatting. And the next day he had to face him on the battlefield and they came face to face. And I think, to, for people to spew hate on social media from a distance, I don't know if people would have 
the kind of guts to say it to someone else's face. So that's it's really powerful. And thank you for that advice. Oh, it's that's um, from my grandfather. He's always had. He's always been very. There's a lot of like um, army analogies in what he says, but that one I really took with me. Yeah, I mean, just building from that, I was wondering what advice you would give to help those struggling, maybe in this world where there is a lot of negativity, and maybe they're struggling to find their own voice, trapped by maybe societal expectations. How can how could someone begin their journey towards self-empowerment and better mental health? That's a big question. Um, yeah, I, I'm just I think, sorry before before you answer. I, I saw your your poem on the hustle culture, so that's really why I thought it would be a good question to ask. Yeah, I'm a, I'm on a rampage against hustle culture right now because I just I don't think. The thing is, you know, about 10 years ago, people hustling looked very different from what it looks like now. You know, um, I don't think human beings were machines built to be working 16 hours a day um, just to put food on the table. I don't think a word that um, demands that of a human being is is a fair word. And I don't think we were designed for that to start with. You know, um, we were designed to 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 live to live and not live to work. Right. And what is living? Living is being able to spend time with your family, your friends, um, being able to take to rest, you know, and not having to think about, oh, I've not been productive today. I've not done X, Y number of things today. Um, I I just I I have like a real um, a gripe, which I'm going through right now. I think it's like one of the things which I have to go through to get to the other side. But I think a word that that pushes that is also a very ableist word um, because it doesn't consider that what human beings do is we're not young forever or also God forbid something happens or you're born with a disability. Um, I, 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 I struggle with scoliosis and chronic pain. If your world doesn't make allowances for that, what kind of world have, have you built, you know, which is my question to society. Um, and I think interrogating that within yourself and not not constantly feeling like people are judging you, which is really hard to do, especially in the world of social media. Um, those are the two biggest things I would say um, for someone who's kind of looking to find their own voice. The story that you are most scared of telling and the story that makes you the most uncomfortable and vulnerable, that's usually the story you need to tell the most. That is the voice that needs to be heard the most. Um, and I usually say to people who are scared, especially of the of 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 whether their voice would be accepted or not, that even if it changes one life or one person hears it and is different after that, you've done your job as a writer, as an artist. You've done your job. That was what you were supposed to do with that piece of work. So you're not creating um you know for for maybe thousands of people or millions of people. you're creating for one one person, you know, yourself and that one person who needs to hear that story or voice. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think finding your voice is so much linked to empowerment and feeling that self sense of worth. And I think that's something like we say with social media that so many young people are struggling with. And I'm really glad to have people like you on the internet because opening up to that vulnerability is so important. And you see the other side where when people feel that weakness, which is in all of us, they really drive to get rid of that and they seek power. And that's why you have these like 
hyper-masculine sort of Andrew Tate figures on the internet who people feeling not empowered try and f- find all the power that they can. And I think that's a much more toxic way to deal with it. I mean, obviously, but it's just an interesting contrast to draw. I, I think um, it's very interesting. Um, I obviously... I'm very annoyed at the existence of someone like Andrew Tate, but I think to be able to really understand him, you you kind of have to come to the point where you understand that the world runs on archetypes. And what he's done is he's developed himself into this archetype of someone that young boys especially should look up to. Um, and it's it's all marketing. It's all based in marketing. And if you're able to crush that and and kind of, understand where he's, why he's become so successful, which a lot of teachers are doing now, which a lot of like parents are doing, um, you're able to defeat that very strong narrative, which has helped someone like that go mainstream. Um, and, but it requires a lot of critical thinking, which right now I feel like, especially with like the Twitter or X as it's called or whatever, it's become in, in very short supply. Um, both nuance and critical thinking are so important when it comes to stuff like this. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Super interesting what you say about archetypes. I agree with that so much. Um, and I think a lot of your work, what I've seen in your writing is trying to create a, a better positive feminine archetype which is the other side. And how, how do you go about trying to do that? I know you use mythology and all that kind of thing, but I find that super interesting that you're kind of tapping into this thing, which people are supposed to aim at and making that aim, you know, much more fulfilling and something that really empowers people. I think my, a lot of my work comes from writing to a younger version of myself. Um, whilst I was growing up in India and I was facing a lot of misogyny. So what can I do to empower that girl? Right. Um, and there are a lot of young women who are in that position today who respond to the work that I'm writing towards that younger version of myself. So in a nutshell, that's where the work comes from. And that's why um, I think a lot of people respond to it, because how would you talk to your young, the younger version of yourself? Right. Um, and that's, I think, with my YA poetry collection, it kind of came from that space as well, um, like an, an auntie or a big sister kind of giving you the advice that she wished she had had growing up. Um, but like not in the patronizing voice, more in the, I understand and you are valid. And here are the tools that you need to be able to navigate this. So yeah, that's, <laughs> in a nutshell, that's what that is. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Um, for someone who maybe was in a similar situation to you or for someone who aspires to be a figure like you, what advice would you give for them to start maybe writing poetry or finding the creative voice in, in a purely creative sense? Um, so your craft is everything. Your craft is everything that um, will matter in the end. Uh, and I think one of the big things that I've learned over the course of time is do not let the, you know, the world, I wouldn't say the world is against young writers and young poets, but it often feels that way, um, that the world is against you and the world doesn't want you to be an artist. They would rather want you to do like that little nine to five job where, you know, like, in a corporate structure where you don't ask a lot of questions and you do what you're told. 
that's what it feels like, especially when you're a young artist, that that is what the world asks for you. To be able to be an artist is to be brave, incredibly brave and incredibly resilient against all of the criticism which will come to you. And you have to be prepared for that. And the only thing that can prepare you for that is the knowledge that you will grow every day that you write. Every day that you write, you will grow. And the way that you know that you have grown as a writer in your craft is the work that you look at six months ago after writing every single day will make you cringe because you'll be like, oh, oh my God, this is so bad. And you're thinking this is so bad. But what you're not realizing is in that moment, you have grown so far beyond that point six months ago that you have become good enough to criticize yourself six six months ago. And that's the way that you know as a creative person, simply as an individual, how far you've come. And that's how you measure your progress in, in your creativity. Yeah, I find I have that a lot. Just in general life, you look back at a younger self, especially as a teenager, you look back at your younger self and you're like, what on earth was I doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, no, it's interesting. Um, we spoke to A. Stallings. I'm not sure if you know yes, her. She's another. Of course, everybody and, knows her. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, and what's really interesting is I find in, in your approach, how you let emotion sit at the forefront and all this kind of thing. And that's reflected in free verse. I find the structure of poetry to reflect somebody's approach to it and somebody's mode of life so much. So A. Stallings, for example, who writes um, very formal, organized poetry, uh, very in line with the, with the classical style, she likes to write almost like a nine to five. So you said, for example, that everybody just wants you to have a nine to five, but she, she writes, you know, she has to be in a stable mood with a clear head. Do you, do you find that as well? Or do you, do you find that you write best when you're in a moment of passion? How does it, how does it work for you? It, it, it kind of is both. Um, I think as I've got older, I've got more rigid about like writing between nine to five only because my partner works from nine to five and I like to make sure that our evenings are for us. Um, you know, other than when I go and I sit down and I start writing, I, I get a lot of like 3am ideas and thoughts. A lot of my idea work happens at night, if that makes sense. Um, and I think it's again, because the tiredness stops the inner critic. Anyway, um, I've noticed that now I do work a little bit more like in a nine to five structure, but that's more out of consideration for the person that I'm with, um, as well as like a need to have the downtime in the evening of like having the little routine of making dinner and like then sitting and having a, a conversation with the person I love. So it, it I suppose it swings and rounds about, but I do think that I do some of my best writing on the train. So trains, five hour long journey, six hour. I'm really looking forward to going to Edinburgh in a week because that's like a five hour long journey and I'm going to end up doing so much good writing on the train. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you say you've got that more rigid structure now. I guess the train is like the antithesis of that. Yeah. It allows you to break free a bit. But... Do you see that in your writing? Like, do you see yourself becoming a bit more structured in your writing style and stuff? Is that reflected or not so much? Kind of. I think this year I spent a lot of time um, reading the classics that had a really big impact on me as a teenager. So, of course, I was I when I was a teenager, I read uh, 
Dorian Gray, you know, Frankenstein, all of those books. And they had a really big impact on the kind of work I do now, which is along the lines of mythology, pagan, kind of sci-fi, fantasy work, which I enjoy. I enjoy writing horror a lot, which I don't share very often. Um, I don't share it all under my own name. I have a pen name for that. But I love experimentation. Um, And I think experimentation can only happen when you take yourself out of your comfort zone. And I think that will only happen when you are like out and about somewhere. Strangely, a lot of like the best kind of writing you'll do is when you're not supposed to be writing. Like, so you're out with your friends and someone says something and you're like, that's a story. And you write it down because it's like, you know, and you've told yourself you're not going to be working. And that's when your brain goes, actually, you know, I think this is a time, great time to be creative. So you've just got to listen to what your brain is telling you, what your body is telling you to do. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah. No, it's really interesting because I find so much of what you talk about in your freeform poetry is kind of like, you're always sort of breaking these boundaries. You're on the train and you're, you're traversing. You're somewhere new. You're with your friends. The, the kind of metaphorical version of that is your pen name and that you're kind of breaking out a boundary of yourself. How do you find being under that pen name affects your writing, being free from the boundary of having this name attached? Oh, it's great. Like, um, I think what's really fantastic about writing horror is that there is a structure to it. So you wake up in the morning and in the mornings I wake up and I'm like, I think I'm going to spend today writing some horror. I, the basis of it is today, something terrible is going to happen to someone and I have to invent that person and that terrible thing, which is very freeing. It's very freeing. It's very freeing. Um, It's not like I base my horror on any real people or anything who upset me or anything like that. But yeah. um, (laughs) Sounds like like you're admitting it. (laughs) No, but what all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is that the horror under the pen name is probably one of the most freeing things you can do. And I think that's where a lot of writers do go and have pen names if they're trying to experiment in a whole new field. I have a friend who does sci-fi and they wanted to experiment in um, romance. So they got a pen name to write in romance because it's such a different field from sci-fi in many ways. So, and they really enjoyed it. And then they came out and they said, okay, this is, you know, I, I can write, I can let people know that this is me now. So it's like one of those things you, a lot of the reasons why writers go for pen names is to not be burdened with the, um, what you've developed under your own name. And also you want to see if you can make yourself a success in a completely different field within your field um, without having people read it because it's you who's written it, you know? Um, So that's what I really love about writing horror under a pen name is like, you know, you're building up from scratch again and there's nothing more fun than building up from scratch again. Yeah. That's brilliant. I mean, J.K. Rowling, I think, did it as well under a pen name, the same idea of starting again, seeing if you can become popular. But I think everyone knew it was her, so it defeated the purpose. But it's interesting that you mentioned horror. It's just funny because when I was like 11, the first book that I wrote, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, my God. (laughs) I always read it as well. It was called Gerut, King of Death. And it was about like people being killed by this man who was omnipotent. And it was crazy. All my friends have seen it. I was like, 12 years old and I look back I'm like what was going on through my head at 12 years old to be writing such (laughs) horror such horror but it's I understand the feeling of 
freeing yourself with such horror content? I think, no, I was just going to say, I think that's really, that's amazing because that hits on something um, which I've always felt with horror. Um, there's a reason why young children especially find so much uh, joy in being scared almost. And it comes from this idea that horror or supernatural stuff, it scares you in a way that you know it can't happen in real life. Because when you're a kid, you're, you know, the world is a scary place, especially when you're a child, because you don't know a lot of the world and you're told by your parents, don't talk to strangers, don't do this, don't do that. So if you're able to write a really scary story, you feel like you've got some kind of control on it. And that's where that comes from. I think that's such a that's such a great thing to know about you, Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You should, you should read it. It's honestly hilarious because he obviously was had a lot of stuff going on in his life at the time. I don't know what, but <laughs> one, of the scenes, one of the scenes I remember was something like Jarrett, he transports into this room and then he converts his like victim, I don't know what you want to call them, his patient or whatever, <laughs> into a sandwich and just eats this fat sandwich that's made out of this person <laughs> whilst they're alive. It's hilarious. I think that's how we got the you name Lou. that as a film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's now the idea of bread. Yeah, just transformed into this podcast, the loaf podcast. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I can see the connection. But yeah, I mean, to... Um, to kind of, uh, we went off on a bit of a tangent there, talking about my <laughs> my past creative self. But it's I was, great. I, I am just, a huge fan of hearing about what young writers, especially very young writers, have done. Um, because we've all written yeah. things, but it's really nice that yours is you remember yours, which is really good. <laughs> yeah. No, I um, uh, just to change topic very very quickly because unfortunately it seems we're running a little bit long time, but. Firstly, I wanted to say your answers so far have been so, so great. And uh, I'm just having so much fun. I um, and I wanted to, me and Ollie wanted to have some even more fun. And this is something we do a lot with our friends at maybe pre-drinks before going out. Um, it's uh, something we call like poetry freestyle, where we're kind of gonna, <laughs> we're going to, we have our chat here. And for those watching it on, on YouTube, we'll have the text coming up, but we're going to create a poem together, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Okay. Let's see if I, we'll see if my sleep deprived brain lets me actually do this, but yeah. <laughs> so I think what we'll, I think what we'll do is, um, we'll say it out loud for those listening on Spotify. We'll write it in the chat and then we can kind of work on it together. I think the pitch that we had, the only thing that we kind of prepared was a mini pitch. We're going to do maybe a poem around mental health, potentially compare stars to thoughts. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'll, I'll start. We, we, I wrote the first line, first line already. We don't need any kind of rhyme scheme or any kind of yeah, we control. Yeah. yeah. Very, very free. Uh, so I'll start. Our minds or galaxies. Okay. Okay. Um, maybe I'll go um, next. And then Nikita, yeah. you can do two more verses. Okay. Lines. I'll go next. So we're doing mental health, right? So I do um when we when we cry, stars cry with us. When we break, we fall like shooting stars. Um ever shining. No, not ever shining. <laughs> uh 
It doesn't need to be perfect or anything. No, no, no. It's I, not I, like I, we're going to put it. doesn't need to make sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, we are the butterflies of this cosmos. Okay. I think I'll go with something like when we watch the stars, we watch ourselves. I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm, it's, I'm doing something like, I remember when we watched the stars together, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get that perspective of how um, we were watching them and we're both watching each other. And now it's like, we're almost together. I remember when we were together watching them. Oh yeah. I got it. Oh, Black nice. holes and supernovas. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. Just for those listening on Spotify, watching on YouTube, this will probably be clipped up a bit. So in reality, this took longer than how you're watching it now, just so that you don't think super, super quick or anything. Yeah. Yeah, uh, let me, let me start with something because otherwise we'll, we'll have people watching all day as we try and come up with this. Um, I think what we'll do is um, just about like two lines each yeah. more. So I'll do two, then Ollie will do two, and then you Ooh, can do two. Amazing. Um, okay, brilliant. Uh, let me think. Okay, something like each star, a thought in the vast expanse, constellations, like a conscious trance. Okay, Ollie, you've got you've got one now. Yeah, we're getting onto the rhyming now. Let me have a think. <laughs> Guide my way. Don't flicker so. The light you shine is all I know. So let the universe in you find the universe in me. And together, let's seek out What would truly make us free? There we oh, go. Beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. Wow. That so much. Do you, think, do you think you'd be able to read it all from the beginning to the end? Should, for I, us? should like, I do the thing? Bring that together. And then we can... Yeah, just read, read the, whole, the whole thing and let's see how it sounds all as right, a poem let's... and see how well we did. Should I... Would it help if I wrote it down in one message and then put it into oh, like stanzas or are you fine to read it as I it got is? This. <laughs> okay. Our minds are galaxies. When we cry, stars cry with us. When we break, we fall like shooting stars. We are the butterflies of this cosmos. When we watch the stars, we watch ourselves. I remember when we were together watching the stars from below through black hole and supernovas. The tapestry of the night sky matches the tapestry of our minds. Each star a thought in the vast expanse, constellations like a conscious trance. Guide my way, don't flicker so. The light you shine is all I know. So let the universe in you find the universe in me. And together, let's seek out what would truly make us free. That's the one. Beautiful. That was really fun. Amazing. That was fun. 
yeah thank, thank you. you that was so much fun yeah writing about the universe is, is a really good one isn't it because all of my work is about that <laughs> so, thank you for that brilliant that, thank that you so really, much that was really fun oh okay well unfortunately i think that's going to be all the time we have but i wanted to say nikita thank you so much for joining us it was such fun thank you for your answers really really insightful uh ollie did you enjoy the interview i enjoyed it very much thank you lucas and thank you nikita thank you, so lucas. much for coming thank on you, it's been amazing it was so nice to talk to both of you and i really enjoyed writing that poem at the end with you so thank you for that <laughs> No worries. Thank you so much. So uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to close off. Thank you, Nikita Gill, for joining us on today's episode. This is the Loaf Podcast. Holly, signing off.